This week on the Backtable Podcast. Really, this is something that is available to everybody. And there's a big problem in the field with men kind of having this problem and not knowing that this option is available. So kind of uh, there are a number of efforts to kind of get visibility of this problem out to uh, urologists, out to non-urologists, and out to patients to realize that good options exist that could really dramatically improve the quality of life uh, among patients. And there's also innovation underway. The sling has been redesigned, uh, you know, over the last several years. Uh, And even kind of on the horizon, there's the EAUS that's in development uh, that I expect that will be present and I'm being told will be on the market within the next five to 10 years. everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Stephen Hudak from the UT Southwestern Department of Urology. Steve is our recently minted program director, which we're all very excited about. He's been an uh, absolute thought leader in trauma reconstruction and prosthetics over the last decade or so. A lot of fascinating and important work on um, some of the particular uh, challenges and clinical scenarios we meet in military personnel. And I really couldn't be happier to introduce uh, Steve to the show. So welcome, Steve. How's the morning going? Thanks, Aditya. It's uh, great to be with you. Morning's going great. Excited to be here. All right. All right. So, um, you know, despite... Uh, the fact that um, there's been tremendous progress, technological advances, and surgical management of prostate cancer, of course, stress incontinence is something that we see. And uh, today, we're really hoping to dig in with Steve on some of the um, nuances, tips, and tricks as we guide patients through the post-prostatectomy incontinence journey. So, Steve, maybe I'll just start out with, um, you know, leading up to surgery, anything you recommend to surgeons performing prostatectomy? terms of prepping their patients for surgery. Yeah, that's great. So I think expectation management uh, is huge. It's not probably appropriate to overpromise outcomes from the beginning. Um, I think it's important to prepare patients for the for basically the the the, the certainty of some degree of urinary leakage, uh, certainly immediately after catheter removal, and so they're, that way their expectations are set. They're not surprised uh, and disappointed if there is some leakage when the catheter comes out, um, and if they happen to be more continent or more continent than most. Well, then they're going to be very pleased with that. So I think that trying to set the stage for kind of quality of life expectations from the beginning um, are important. But then I think it's very reasonable to not kind of be doom and gloom about it and let them know that over the course of the first six months to a year after the radical prostatectomy, that the majority of men will regain continence to the degree of uh, uh, needing one pad per day or less, and it's probably only about 10 to 20 percent of men um, that will need further treatments for ongoing uh, incontinence after radical prostatectomy. So I think kind of kind of setting that stage kind of early on under promise over deliver, uh, but then not being too pessimistic with the long term and then probably concluding it with letting them know that if they are in that 10 to 20 percent, there are good, safe, uh, kind of well-tested and proven options, uh, both surgical and non-surgical, to improve that control uh, and secondarily their quality of life. 
Perfect, perfect. Certainly on my end, um, I absolutely agree with that philosophy of of trying to set realistic expectations, perhaps even under-promise and over-deliver, hopefully. And in addition, I'll have them start doing Kegel exercises. So I think here in our practice, typically patients are going to be doing Kegels, you know, essentially as soon as the catheter comes out and they're and they're comfortable. You're going to see patients from the community as well as internally. If they've been doing Kegels for you know, eight to 12 weeks without any meaningful improvement. Um, you know, what are your, what are your thresholds? What are your thoughts on pelvic floor physical therapy? So I think that this is a resource that's very valuable. Um, unfortunately, it's not available in all communities. Um, a, big, a good pelvic floor physical therapist that will work with an incontinent male uh, can be difficult to find. Um, and so certainly if there's one available at your practice or in your community, um, I think it is uh particularly important, especially if they seem to be struggling a little bit with the mechanics of pelvic floor physical therapy. Obviously, it's hard without complex you know, measuring devices to really know this, um, but you can try to assess if they really have kind of captured the, uh, the physical aspect of a Kegel. It's a foregone conclusion that guys will just kind of know how to do it, um, uh, but if they seem like to be struggling with it, I think in this group, it's particularly helpful. Um, uh, so if you have the combination of, like you said, uh, a couple, three months out, and they don't seem to be making any progress. They feel like they're struggling with the mere act of a Kegel exercise, um, especially if that resource is available. Um, I think there's a lot to gain and very little to lose by getting a, a physical therapist involved. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, and we really are, I think, blessed to have tremendous physical therapists that um, are really, really experts at what they do. And I think there's also, you know, a growing body of videos and so forth, you know, even on YouTube that I'll often direct patients towards that, that can kind of help uh, making sure that they're being done properly. So let's say that they've kind of gone through some lifestyle changes, decreasing caffeine, seeing a physical therapist, and they're still kind of not quite where they want to be. And this is, I'm guessing, a lot of the patients that come into your door. Tell us a little bit about your, um, your kind of intake and evaluation of these patients. Yeah, that's great. So I think you bring up a good point in terms of different type, types of referrals and different types of practices that people have. I mean, certainly I'd consider some of the uh, incontinent surgeries well within the realm of a well-trained general urologist. So it's possible that there are still doctors in smaller practices that may kind of care for the patient throughout the entire experience from pre-op evaluation, radical prostatectomy, post-op care, and even surgical care for incontinence. So I think that's kind of a different uh, you know, setup for someone that's going to see them all the way along compared to someone that may be in a bigger practice that focuses their surgical care um, um, on uh, post-operative care of prostate cancer patients, survivorship, prosthetics, et cetera. So sometimes kind of where you identify that patient matters. Uh, many times those of us that uh, kind of do this sort of work exclusively really won't see the patient until, you know, a year, sometimes longer out. So that's very, very different than seeing someone that's three or six months out. I think regardless of your perspective, when you're seeing them within the first year, I think what's more important than a specific month cutoff is really their trajectory. So for example, if someone perhaps had a, a wide resection for aggressive prostate cancer, they're six months out, and they've really seen no meaningful improvement over the last several months despite pelvic floor physical therapy, I don't think there's anything that's magical that's uh, really going to happen in those next six months or any clear cutoff that has to happen. 
So I think it's the combination of time frame, uh, whatever sort of disease parameters. Certainly, if it was a salvage procedure after radiation, then obviously they're most likely, to, much more likely to uh, to fail conservative management. So, kind of pre-op and peri-op uh, information is important. Time from surgery, trajectory of improvement are all important, uh, and then digging uh, deep into that history, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, is is necessary at the first visit. I think as a side note to that, I'd say that there are a couple of different ways to kind of work through the evaluation, uh, and the AUA guidelines kind of leave a lot of uh, latitude uh, depending on a, a urologist's practice. Philosophically. I like to do the evaluation for interested patients in two steps, two separate visits. And it comes from the fact that when we think about the viewpoint of a patient that had a surgical treatment and then now has a problem, it's not necessarily a drastic complication like something that leaves them in the hospital for longer or a pronged, prolonged surgical leak or an infection. But in their mind, it's going to be, I wasn't continent or I was continent, and then I had this surgery, and now I'm not continent. So I personally don't like to go in there guns blazing and say, I'm Dr. Hudak, I'm your surgeon, we're gonna fix this with more surgery on the first day. I like to use that first visit rather to take a good history, use the 15 or 20 minutes in that uh, appointment really to kind of get to know their problem and to allow them to be comfortable kind of with the plan of evaluating it, not jumping directly into surgery. So that first visit for me, again, is a history, a gaining of kind of a two-way rapport, and then a little bit of education about the options that are available. Um, I'll give them, if it appears to be uh, pure or at least mixed stress incontinence, I'll give them some online and in-print materials about the options and then leave it at that. Um, I don't do a invasive physical exam. I don't do any invasive testing on that first visit. I do the history. Um, I give them some information, and then if they're interested, I'll set up a very short-term follow-up uh, where we'll do a cystoscopy, uh, some provocative maneuvers, a physical examination, and a residual check. Perfect. Um, any questionnaires that you use um, kind of as a standard part when you're, when you're intaking these patients just to give some objective data to quantify symptom severity? I don't find them to be clinically helpful. Um, I certainly think they're they're relevant if 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 we're doing um, uh, kind of well designed research, but clinically helpful, uh, you know, I certainly certainly I don't. Um, the main things that I ask them are: When do you leak? When do you not leak? What are your activity levels? You know, and then basic kind of flow dynamics stuff. Do you have a good stream? You know, blood in the urine, bladder infections. So I think the when do you leak is important, uh, uh, obviously, because, you know, if it's an obvious classic stress case, they'll say, well, when I cough, when I lift. Um, but sometimes they'll just say, you know, doc, when I'm up and walking around, I just will check my pad later and it'll be wet. And so that can be kind of hard to characterize. Um, in which case, the second question, when do you not leak? is important. Um, so I think that patients that are dry all night is a pretty reliable indicator for this being a stress problem. I think patients that say, yeah, you know, um, you know, I'm wet, but I can still feel that urge and walk to the bathroom, get to the toilet and get a stream going. I think that's a pretty reliable indicator of it not being a kind of an urge predominant problem. And so I think kind of the give and take of, you know, what causes it, what doesn't cause it, and then a kind of a, uh, an overall assessment of their activity. I mean, there are younger men, uh, uh, you know, that will leak several pads a day, 
but are still working full time. They still go to the gym. They still run. And that's very different than someone that may be homebound because of the degree of incontinence. And so, uh, you know, I think kind of an assessment of that and kind of that's why I take that first visit to really kind of have a conversation to get into those three things. And to me, uh, that conversation is more helpful on a patient to patient basis uh, than any uh, sort of printed questionnaires. Got it. Yeah. Sounds like it's almost a ultimately culminates in a bit of like a bother impact on on life and, and type of activities. Pad weights, bladder diaries, are those are those things that you prefer to get or or is it kind of in the same camp of good for research, maybe not uh, as clinically impactful? Yeah, same same camp there. Definitely those are, are are very, very helpful if we're trying to do you know, studies to evaluate this in large groups. Um, fortunately, there's there was a study that came out several years ago uh, that really looked at pad weights and compared it to things that might be more easy to assess. And they found kind of strong correlation, uh, not just to pad counts, but pad weights compared to the combination of pad count, pad type, uh, the the an assessment of how soaked it is when they change, and then the overall kind of quality of life impact. And this makes a lot of sense. So, you know, a man may say, I, I leak two pads per day. And another man may say, I leak four pads per day. Um, and you would, you know, obviously think it might be hard to compare those. But if you dig into that and ask them what type of pad and how, how soaked are they and how much does it bother you, that man that leaks four pads per day might say, I use a thin pad liner. It's barely damp when I change it. Um, I'm very active and it's very bothersome to me. And then compare that to the man that uses a full thickness, depends type pull-up undergarment twice a day that's fully soaked. It doesn't cause him bother and he barely leaves, barely leaves the house. And so you can see how uh, just digging into it with some very simple questions will provide a lot more information uh, than a simple pad count and is a lot less cumbersome for you, for your patient, uh, and for your office in terms of weighing in terms of weighing the pads. Absolutely, and I think it's something we all come across clinically. What if they um, complain about uh, climacteria specifically? Any thoughts on how that interfaces with general stress incontinence, or even if it's a bit of an isolated symptom? Uh, I like to dig into it a little bit. I think this term is becoming, you know, more kind of mainstream, certainly among urologists and, and secondarily, you know, just due to the uh, available information that patients can get uh, is, you know, becoming more of a, you know, a thing that they know about. That being said, I rarely have a patient that comes in, com you know, using that exact term. And so I think it's important to be very, uh, I guess, probing, and it can be difficult, but obviously you'll generate a rapport with the patient, but be a bit probing as to whether it's incontinence during the physical act of sex, which is obviously a, a, a act that can be straining and can cause a true stress environment, or is it simply isolated to uh, leakage during the time of climax? And so I think kind of evaluating that and digging into that and then seeing, is this just another manifestation of the stress or is it isolated climacteria? And then kind of combining that with any further information they gave you to really see, is it totally isolated climacteria or is this something that will just be treated in combination with the other aspects of their overall picture of stress incontinence? Okay, um, super helpful. Quick comment on Cunningham clamps, condom cats, you know, I feel like this is like even over the course of my relatively finite career, something that's been coming across my desk less and less common, but um, a quick comment would be great. 
you know, we see very few men that are going to be successful uh, with either of these in the long term. There's some anatomical considerations, obviously. Um, you know, you need a protuberant phallus to, to apply any of these, especially a condom catheter, um, given the fact that it's not just kind of a single point fixation. And so what I'll do for these kind of miscellaneous devices is I'll refer the patients to, uh, you know, a third-party website where they know they can purchase them and try them kind of on their own. And I've actually learned a lot from my patients in these over the years, particularly for non-surgical candidates or patients that are averse to surgery. Sometimes they'll come in with kind of handouts and pictures of, hey, doc, I saw this or that. And I've just been, you know, really surprised with what patients can find out on their own, those that are motivated. Um, but for those that are kind of seeking these options, I give them um, a third-party website that I trust where they don't have to, obviously, if you Google penis clamp, there can be some interesting things that come up onto their screen. So I kind of point them in the right direction if this is what they want. And there's different types of kind of undergarments that are more discreet than just going to the grocery store. So there's really a wealth of information that's out there. As far as specific use of these, uh, the one caveat that I would put in um, is that I think a Cunningham clamp is very, very helpful to serve as almost kind of a, uh, you know, a test run, so to speak, compared to an artificial urinary sphincter. Uh, and when you think about it, uh, that makes sense. It's a compressive device that the patient controls. It's obviously different with regards to where it is anatomically. But I found it particularly helpful um, for the very severely incontinent male that perhaps doesn't even avoid because he's leaking so severely. And he'll you'll see these patients, particularly in the post-radiation, post-prostatectomy setting, that they just basically are wet all the time. And so for these patients, it could be difficult, especially the radiated ones, to know do they have bladder dysfunction or really bad sphincter dysfunction or both. And so uh, many clinics will have, you know, just the, the classic Cunningham clamp in their office. Uh, you can give them one, tell them, uh, show them how to use it, tell them to not wear it 24 hours a day and apply it. And if they can go two, three, four hours without severe urgency and, and, and discomfort, I've found that this is a really good kind of provocative maneuver that that costs basically nothing and requires very little, uh, little, uh, uh, no invasiveness uh, to then see uh, if it'll, if kind of it's a simulation to see if they have the appropriate bladder capacity uh, to uh, to be successful with a sphincter. Nice to know how you're kind of incorporating that into you know part of the evaluation. So I think we've we've touched on some you know critical aspects here. You know, conservative management options, uh, fairly comprehensively, it would seem like. And now we're we're kind of you know beyond non-surgical options. You touch base on timing, how trajectory is probably a little bit more important than than like a magical one-year cutoff. So you know maybe without uh, putting words in your mouth, the earliest would be in that six-month time frame. If you're plateauing close to a year, then it it's probably reasonable to start thinking about um, surgical correction. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely fair. And, and um, the one thing that you want to be, I think the re reason the, the trajectory matters so much is that even severe leakers, if they're improving, you may presume, well, man, this, this, this gentleman's at six months out. He's still using five pads per day. Um, uh, but if he's improving, there's the possibility that he could perhaps, if not resolve completely, kind of tip from a more severe leaker into a more mild leaker. And that's important because if he kind of over that time frame uh, may still need surgery, but kind of uh, tilts into a sling candidate, uh, 
and you were to operate on him too soon before he kind of plateaued, um, I think that might be kind of a missed opportunity to potentially employ a less invasive option. But that'll still still certainly fall within that kind of plateau situation. And so I agree with what you said. Um, if they flatlined, if they've kind of maximized uh, pelvic floor uh, kind of maneuvers, then whether it's, you know, seven months, you know, 12 months or 15 months, uh, it doesn't really matter. And and it you know, in that same vein, if someone is continuing to improve at 16, 18 months, and they are kind of patient and uh, uh, are, are, are kind of happy with their course, there knows, there's no need to kind of leap in uh, early. I mean, uh, clearly, if you're much beyond two years, I think it's probably not helpful waiting. But I think it all kind of comes back to that trajectory more so than the specific time frame. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so now, you know, as we start thinking about you know, interventions here. Can you kind of tell us how you organize, A, what are the comprehensive set of tools that are available to you? And B, what are the patient-specific and degree of continent-specific factors that may be guiding your conversation and leading your recommendation? So I'll kind of bring it back to what I'd mentioned before about it really being a two-step, uh, two-visit evaluation. And so, you know, with the, within that first visit, of course, the history, but also kind of an assessment as to what their general kind of thoughts are, certainly their their medical status. Obviously, if it's early on, if they were healthy enough to undergo a robotic prostatectomy, they're going to be healthy enough to undergo, uh, you know, any of the surgical incontinence procedures provided everything went well after the prostate. Um, but really kind of assessing kind of where they're at with regards to what they might want to do or what they want to try. If they have even an inkling of interest in the surgical options. At that first visit, I will offer them, you know, usually within a week or two, a follow-up uh, for uh, a little bit more of a kind of the secondary evaluation. And that's where we will really begin to kind of stratify or, or I guess complete the stratification for the options that are available. So on that visit, We'll come in, we'll get a urinalysis, uh, we'll do a cystoscopy. And during the cystoscopy, of course, look in through the urethra into the bladder. You do a full cystoscopy like you normally would. Once in a while, you'll, you'll, you'll detect a guy that had a bladder tumor without really any other inciting uh, symptoms or signs, which I think obviously is a, an important find. And it's nice not to find that on the day of surgery. Um, that's rare, but again, it'll be important to find. Sometimes you'll see a subclinical bladder neck contracture, uh, certainly less common in this era uh, of robotics. So to eliminate you know, those two probably most uh, frequent uh, occult bladder pathologies is important. We'll fill the bladder two or 300 cc's and then withdraw the scope to the level of the proximal bulbar urethra. We'll look at the sphincter. Uh, it'll be on the screen so the patient will have some feedback. And I'll ask them to uh, contract their pelvic floor, to do a Kegel exercise, to use whatever kind of lexicon that they're comfortable with. And then we'll watch together how that sphincter closes. You'll see a couple of patterns. One, you'll see complete and firm and sustained sphincter closure, and that's favorable. Sometimes you'll see complete closure that immediately fatigues, almost like a wink, that it closes, but then immediately uh, can't be sustained. And then less commonly, you'll see what's called a sector defect where only part of the sphincter, half of the sphincter will contract due to a structural problem with the sphincter itself. And then less commonly, it won't, they won't be able to contract it at all. So it's good to kind of quantify that cystoscopically. It's good for the patient to see it, to say, if it doesn't squeeze much at all, they'll be able to see that and they'll be able to better understand the anatomical uh, problem. 
And then what I'll do, particularly for those that have not been radiated and maybe more mild to moderate uh, uh, leakers, I want to try to simulate what a sling would do. And so it's a little bit cumbersome, but you prepare the patient for it and then basically place pressure with your, uh, you know, might have your, have your assistant help you by holding the scope and then place firm pressure behind the scrotum right in the mid perineum to assess the mobility of the proximal bulbar and membranous complex. A favorable response to this would be when you apply manual pressure in this area. You don't see compression of the bulb, but you rather see complete coaptation or reproduction of the membranous closure. So this suggests a favorable response to the mechanics of, the, of, of a sling, which basically kind of improves the passive closure of the membranous urethra. It's a little bit hard to illustrate this, uh, you know, verbally in this format, but uh, you know, it's something that's an easy test to do. So that's favorable when you apply that compression and you see closure of the membranous urethra without the patient volitionally do it. Then you remove the scope, do a simple cough test while lying down. If they don't leak, I stand them up. If they are passively continent when standing with a full bladder, I think this is important. And then I'll have them cough again. And then finally, we'll have a urinal and have them begin to start their stream. And once they've got a full stream going, I'll have them interrupt the stream. So it's the combination of those really maneuvers that'll help stratify them uh, between uh, the two most common surgical techniques, uh, mainly a sling and a sphincter. Got it. And I, and I can absolutely appreciate why, you know, this needs to happen in a couple of different visits. Sounds like a true wealth of information on the history side in visit A and certainly on the um you know, examination side on, on, on the second visit. And, and I know that this is not going to be kind of binary, Steve, but, you know, as you alluded to, it's kind of generally slings versus sphincters. You know, what are your kind of main decision points that are driving that? So, yeah, you're exactly right. It's a continuum. A continence, uh, incontinence severity is a continuum. Um, and so things that we consider are you know the the severity of leakage as assessed by kind of that four question aspect that we talked about before, the response to uh, the provocative maneuvers that I just mentioned, the most important historical I guess caveat is radiation or not, you know we're pretty much limiting our conversation here to post prostatectomy, and and that's very appropriate because really that's the overwhelming majority of male stress incontinence patients that we treat. And then kind of getting into kind of more subtleties in terms of uh, the age of the patient, kind of their overall functional status, uh, their goals, and kind of tying all that together. And it'll create, like I said, somewhat of a continuum, but really we'll kind of tease out patients that are clearly not candidates for one or the other. So for example, if you have a patient that has you know, severe arthritis of the hands or bad neuropathy of their hands, uh, and they have a dif difficult time typing on a keyboard, uh, holding a pen, they're not going to have really, uh, they're going to really, really struggle with using an artificial sphincter and relying on someone else to operate that sphincter for them is just not a sustainable thing. So those sorts of problems would eliminate someone uh, from an artificial sphincter candidacy. Conversely, you know, someone that's someone that's radiated, uh, someone that has a high post void residual, which we'll check after the provocative maneuvers uh, once they complete their voiding, as I mentioned. Um, those are not going to be patients that are going to be well suited for a sling. And so 
continent severity is kind of the final aspect of that. If someone leaks one or two pads per day, they're minor, minor pads, they're not soaked very much. I'm loath to put a sphincter in those men, particularly if they're younger, because uh, the likelihood of needing a revision is much higher in younger men just due to the, the, their life expectancy. And then the opposite side of that, patients that have gravity type incontinence are never going to do well uh, with the sling. So I do what I can to kind of put them in, you know, to those that are clearly in one camp or the other and to kind of whittle it down to those that may be option or maybe candidates for both. So this would be the the kind of the, you know, the functional man in his 60s or early 70s that's in reasonably good health that leaks three or four pads per day, that has uh, favorable metrics on cystoscopy, as we discussed, that really is a candidate for either operation. And then it's a, you know, we can get further into that if that discussion if you'd like, but that's really the, the main group that it requires some more kind of complex decision-making for those that could really go either way. Perfect. So you'd mentioned, um, you know, with the Cisto, you get a lot of information, even potentially around um, strictures, bladder neck contractures. I'm just going to ask you briefly a couple of kind of timing questions for some of these scenarios. So history bladder neck contracture that you incised, what's your time frame before you consider, you know, doing any type of outlet procedure? So I'll back up just a second, and I think it really, you know, there are two, I guess, general categories of, of bladder neck contracture patients that we'll see. Uh, like I said, fortunately, this is much, much less common uh, than when I was a resident. When I feel like the junior resident uh, in the endo suite was doing TUI BNCs literally every every OR day back in the open prostatectomy area era, and thankfully, this is as has uh, changed the game with regards to the frequency of these. And so in kind of the current era, if you will, there are two kind of kind of categories as I would kind of place them that we see. Some are a subclinical or a, or a asymptomatic uh, uh, bladder neck contracture where basically patient says they have a good stream, they might empty completely. Uh, their only complaint is the incontinence and you do the preoperative uh, cystoscopy and there's a perhaps a 12 or a 14 French bladder neck contracture that you can't scope through. So this is entirely different than the other category of patient that perhaps may be radiated or had an unfortunate hematoma with a distraction after their prostatectomy that goes into urinary retention or is severely symptomatic. So the reason these two patients are different is that obviously a patient that has no symptoms from it and has no voiding problems, that they don't have infections, they're not in retention, this is a patient that really the only reason we need to treat these is to be able to get a catheter in to perform the operation. So for those, I'll have no problem with doing a balloon dilation uh, at the time, uh, particularly if it's like a 12-14 French, do a balloon dilation at the time of the sphincter or the sling. The catheter is in, we do the operation, take the catheter out as we normally would, and the likelihood of that progressing to a urinary retention situation is effectively nil. It'll likely go back to its previous state of 12 or 14 French and it'll resume being no problem to the patient. However, if the patient is in urinary retention and needs to have a more uh, aggressive uh, incision of that contracture, I think this is a different thing altogether. And the last thing that you wanna do is you know, do that endoscopic procedure, put the sphincter in immediately or soon after, and then risk them going back into retention in the short term. And now you're having to sort out kind of how to manage that, instrument their fresh sphincter, 
likely need a suprapubic tube. And so those two camps are very, very different with how to kind of kind of plan the time frame. Got it. Appreciate you kind of distinguishing those types of bladder neck contractures. And just a, just a quick timing question. I'm just going to almost ask you kind of rapid fire here. So if they've had a prostatectomy and um, based on pathology or PSA, if postoperative radi radiation is planned, how do you kind of approach that? I mean, of course, you want to look at degree of incontinence and whether they're, you know, continuing to improve. But broad strokes, do you want to get your sling or sphincter in before or after radiation? So certainly, we always want to get it in before radiation, especially if it's a sling, because slings don't work well after radiation. So if it's a guy that leaks two or three pads per day, and he's, uh, you know, kind of presumed to require radiation, uh, then it's best to get it in ahead of time. There's not good data to say that it won't fatigue after the radiation. Uh, but I've noted that the kind of rearrangement, the structural rearrangement that we see with the sling is possible and favorable before radiation and not after radiation. And so basically, if radiation is imminent, it's a high-risk patient, um, he's several months out, um, and basically they're hoping to radiate sooner than later, I don't want to delay that part of their cancer care to do the surgery. What's much more common is a patient may have a early biochemical recurrence, a PSA is 0 0.07, um, but they're really waiting for it to kind of truly uh, uh, be defined as a true biochemical recurrence. So radiation is not yet imminent, so to speak. In those cases, you know, I confirm with the radiation oncologist, but in those cases, I definitely do the surgery if radiation is not yet planned. So I hope that kind of answers that time frame question. I don't delay it if it's planned, um, but if it's presumed but not planned, then I certainly do it because, you know, six weeks after uh, the surgery, I'm okay with them proceeding with radiation if need be. Okay. And what if they've been radiated? Do you, is there a certain amount of time you'd like to wait? Um, so this is a prostatectomy, then either adjuvant or salvage radiation. Is there a minimum time that you like to wait? I like to wait three months. Um, I think it's probably not really clearly defined. I think the radiation oncologists are usually in support of that. And so if they're a severe leaker and they're motivated, many times they like to just kind of get back into the routines after the, you know, day after day kind of grind of radiation. So um, it's rare that I see a patient that's really kind of begging to have that placed in the first month or two after they completed their radiation. And so kind of allowing them to restore a baseline, making sure that, that they don't have any kind of early cystitis after radiation. And so usually in the three to six month mark after uh, radiation, Radiation's complete is is the time that we'll start looking into getting back into getting ready for the sphincter. And uh, post salvage prostatectomy patients, oftentimes, you know, of course, there's anatomy characteristics, there's tissue quality characteristics. There can be, you know, fairly pronounced incontinence. Um, do you generally kind of say, yeah, this is not going to likely improve um, with more conservative management? Let's get it in early if they're having incontinence, or give it a little bit of time for the tissue to really repair and heal as much as it's going to. Again, a lot of this depends on the motivation of the patient. You know, if they had radiation, you know, obviously, you know, their 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 prostate cancer surgeon going into the salvage uh, prostatectomy uh, is uh, virtually always going to be very kind of realistic with the fact that they're going to leak afterwards. And so, if they come in guns blazing, you know, at three months, I'd probably say, hey, let's wait till six months, do some physical th uh, therapy just to kind of make sure. But I have no need to wait longer than that for patients that are in the salvage uh, prostatectomy scenario that are 
are simply not improving. Kind of like what I had said previously, it's there's no sense in waiting for a year on these guys. And I'm not really worried, um, you know, at the six month mark that there's going to be any kind of uh, issues with healing at that point in time, uh, provided there wasn't any uh, any early difficulties getting the catheter out uh, and, and healing uh, the anastomosis after the prostatectomy. Okay. So we've we've kind of made it through some, I think, you know, scenarios that we've seen, and we're we're kind of making decisions. Tell us a little bit about you know managing patient expectations. Perhaps we start out with um, you know a sphincter. You know, how does that kind of talk go in terms of what does this look like? You know, a couple of days after surgery, a few weeks after surgery, in terms of durability and efficacy. Yeah, so this is important. I think the most important thing for them to know is that it doesn't work right away. Namely, that when you place an artificial sphincter, we leave it in a deactivated state uh, and uh, let them heal for about six weeks or so, at which point they're going to be just as incontinent as they were uh, the day before surgery. And so, you know, if you're kind of uh, busy kind of rushing through the counseling, you may overlook that and they'll be surprised for those first six weeks. So that's the first thing is they're, they're going to wet, continue to be incontinent for the first six weeks after after surgery. Perioperatively, vers- virtually all of these are now done in the outpatient setting. You know, I found uh, that, you know, in the first uh, uh, phase of my career that I'd leave a catheter in, keep them overnight. But really, I realized that we weren't doing a darn thing for them um, uh, in that overnight stay. And so there's not much to be gained from that, as all, uh, you know, really at all. What I'll do is I'll use a lot of local anesthetic before I place the prosthesis to make sure that I don't uh, poke any of the components, do a bilateral pudendal block, do a uh, kind of a, a regional block in the area of the regulating balloon uh, uh, placement muscular incision, and then a skin block, um, multimodal an- uh, analgesia from anesthesia, Send them home on uh, NSAIDs, if not contraindicated, Tylenol, and uh, perhaps uh, just a few uh, uh, narcotics if needed as a last resort. And patients do very, very well being discharged in the day of surgery. I leave it maximally kind of deactivated. Uh, and so I've not had a problem with urinary retention. And so I take the catheter out in the operating room and they don't go home with one. Uh, I think if you size your sphincter cuffs a bit snug or don't deactivate it completely, uh, uh, some surgeons kind of will note some early post-operative retention, in which case they might send them home with a catheter. I've never seen that, and so I don't like them going home with a catheter uh, for that reason. So now they're going home the day of surgery. We tell them to take it easy, don't lift anything heavy so they don't herniate their balloon through their muscular incision. They'll have some swelling uh, and some bruising, but really they're on their feet at home, you know, wearing their pad. If they were using a clamp before, they can go back to doing that. And really the recovery from a patient impact standpoint is really only bothersome probably for a week or two, depending on the stamina of the patient. I'll see them back at that six-week mark, clearly earlier if they're having any wound questions. But we'll see them back at six weeks. Uh, we'll activate the device. Um, I do that early in the day because we need to activate it and also prove that they're able to, to use it. And so we'll do that early in the day, and then I'll invite them to either stay in the clinic, have a cup of coffee, or go to a nearby coffee shop or restaurant just to make sure that they can kind of fill their bladder and activate it, operate it on their own and empty their bladder. Because the last thing we want to do this is the last patient slot of the day. And then now it's eight o'clock at night. They can't work it or struggling with it. And they end up in the ER, God forbid. And worst case scenario, someone that doesn't know much about sphincters ends up putting a catheter in on the first day of its use. So I think kind of an early kind of process of doing that early in the day, tell them that I'll be in the office and they can bot back if they're having any issues with it and needing more coaching, uh, provides them some confidence and really provides me some security to know that, you know, kind of uh, what they've went through is not all for not uh, in that first period. 
we've all come across this um, catheters and patients, you know, whether they're getting heart cats or orthopedic surgeries, et cetera. Just a quick, you know, kind of your your strategy for patients that require catheters after AUS. So uh, the uh, the company used to provide a kind of a medical alert bracelet in with the kind of patient education packet that isn't always available now, but they will provide a, a kind of a, a information card where the patient could just send that in, and they'll send them an information bra- bracelet. And so basically, they can weigh wear this like they would any uh, other medical alert bracelet. It basically says artificial sphincter, don't place catheter, call urology. So I think education is important. Um, uh, and this will protect them if there is any, uh, you know, circumstances where they'd be incapacitated or, you know, uh, the nurse will ask them, Do they, are they wearing any jewelry? So it'll be the last thing that they take off in the holding area if they're getting a hip replacement or uh, you know, a heart surgery or something like that. And in those cases, if the, the surgeon that uh, the procedure that they're having absolutely wants to have a catheter, uh, you know, they'll call the urologist, we'll deactivate the device, uh, we'll place a 12 French catheter and just leave it in overnight, uh, take it out next morning. Um, if they're still in the ICU and need to have uh, eyes and nose monitored, uh, then a condom cath works fine in that circumstance or just kind of close nursing care. And then God forbid it is a more kind of dire situation where they uh, uh, need to have catheter drainage for much longer due to their illness or what have you. Then in those cases, a percutaneous suprapubic tube with ultrasound guidance uh, 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 is is probably the safest thing to do uh, and is a bit of a, a bit of a, a frustration, but it's much more important uh, than placing, uh, leaving a prolonged catheter across that sphincter. You'd mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, as a part of your cystoscopic evaluation, it gives you some information in terms of whether there may be a bladder tumor or not. Something, again, that, that kind of comes across my desk uh, periodically, patient with history of sphincter, developed hematuria, suggestive of a bladder tumor, you got to go in there and, you know, get a pathologic diagnosis. Any advice for urologists that come across that state? These are tough situations. I think going into it, you know, this is now converted to a quality of life situation to a, yet again another another cancer operation. So I think informing the patient that the most important thing here is to kind of evaluating, uh, uh, diagnosing, and hopefully uh, treating their presumed bladder cancer. Technically, um, maximally deflating and deactivating the device. In terms of scope selection, if it is just a small tumor that can be kind of uh, cold cut biopsied, I know it's frustrating for the uh, for the but trying flexible scopes if you can, and then ablating the area if that's appropriate from a, a sampling standpoint. If it's too large of a tumor, then obviously that's not going to be practical. Uh, but again, using a smaller non-continuous flow rigid scope will be helpful. Um, there are certainly uh, the possibilities of going in perineally and decoupling the cuff. I think that this should really be used really only in select scenarios, and I wouldn't recommend this the first time around. And then obviously, if a patient has uh, high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, perhaps this is an individual that just may not be the greatest candidate for bladder-preserving modalities because now we're fighting against not only the cancer risk of bladder-preserving therapies, but also that every time you go back in through the urethra, threatening that artificial sphincter. So this certainly, you know, deserves a a three-way discussion between uh, the urologist managing the cancer, uh, the urologist that may be managing his incontinence, and the patient. Perfect. So just backing up a step before we jump into some of the operative considerations, let's maybe stick to sphincters. 
So, Dr. Hudak, once this is in, I'm, I'm going to be bone dry for the rest of my life. Is that a reasonable expectation for the patient? It's a great question. And I know I kind of skipped through it before when you mentioned uh, uh, expectations. I jumped into short term, but you're exactly right. With long term expectations, I make it very clear that being bone dry is certainly a goal that we all strive for but it's not something that can be specifically targeted. We don't do the operation any different in a man that wants to be bone dry versus one that would be perfectly happy with one pad per day. And so I tell them that it, uh, when that is the outcome, everybody is very, very pleased. I talk to them about kind of the well-established kind of outcomes-based based research and that 90% of men have substantial improvement in their incontinence, most of whom use one pad per day or less are happy that they did it, would do it again given the chance, and would recommend it to the friend, to any uh, friend or close loved one. And so I think that that number really drives home the point with regards to kind of patient-reported outcome expectations without saying, hey, we're going to put this sphincter in and you're going to be dry. I tell them nine out of 10 times, you'd be, be, be very pleased with this. I say most guys like to have kind of a security liner just because they're used to it. And if at some point in time you find that that's not needed uh, down the road, then that's an added bonus. And I think this is the appropriate level of kind of uh, expectation management that men are end, uh, end up being very comfortable with. And is that um, going to be the same for patients receiving sling? Uh, sling's a little bit different, okay? So again, it all comes down to patient selection. Uh, that's kind of an all-comers number for men that undergo an artificial sphincter. For those that undergo a sling, it really depends on how severe their incontinence is. Uh, and, uh, you know, so if they're in that moderate three to four pads per day group, their success rate is lower. Uh, and the outcomes of uh, artificial sphincter kind of eclipse uh, sling in this moderate leakage group. And there are a number of, a growing number of publications now that are supporting this. But a man that wears one pad per day is going to have better outcomes. The kind of, uh, kind of boilerplate numbers that I share with patients for sling is if we look at a large group of well-selected sling patients, half of them will be dry. About 30% of them will be improved with a higher quality of life and higher activity level, and about 10 to 20% of them are going to be no different. And so all comers, you know, again, it gets close to that 90%, albeit with a, a kind of a greater proportion that we can can say that they will be bone dry. But an important aspect of that counseling, uh, that, uh, that uh, counseling session is of those 10 to 20% that fail, so to speak, they're no worse. And their outcomes with subsequent sphincter are no different than had they never underwent a sling. So given the less invasive aspects of a sphincter or of a uh, sling, rather, I tell them that they're, if they're kind of on the, on the fence, so to speak, other than the kind of the aspects of going through the surgery, there's very little to lose by attempting a sling. And there is a lot to gain if it's successful, given the fact that it's a passive continence outcome. It doesn't require any manipulation every time they urinate. And its failure rate is, is far different. It's not a mechanical device, so it's not going to erode, infect, uh, or uh, break down. Got it. And I know that this is obviously going to be patient-specific, but if they do fail, quote-unquote, their sling, is your general strategy to put in a sphincter at that point? It kind of depends. You know, you got to dig back into the history, really, to kind of demonstrate the nature of a failure. 
And so you'd certainly do that history exam, repeat the Cisto, make sure there's you know nothing bizarre going on, uh, get a PVR, make sure there's no uh, retention due to the sling, which in the short term is uh, reasonably common, in the long term is is almost never seen. But yeah, to kind of you know oversimplify it, if it is kind of just persistent stress incontinence after a sling that's bothersome for them. I personally would go back to kind of proceed with an artificial sphincter. There are, uh, you know, kind of small reports of a repeat sling, but to me, it just doesn't make a lot of sense if one thing didn't work to do that same thing again. And so, yes, in that patient, I would proceed to a, uh, to a sphincter. And again, there's good data to uh, suggest that placing a sphincter after a sling is no more difficult for the surgeon and the outcomes are no more different for the patient than in a virgin scenario. Perfect. And um, you kind of mentioned, you know, uh, lifespan as well as device function, you know, for patient receiving sphincter, is there kind of a, you know, the clock starts at, at the time of placement? Yeah, certainly. It's, it's a mechanical device, obviously. So uh, the mechanical aspects of it can break down. Uh, you know, the tubing can break. Uh, the pressure regulating balloon, which is just a thin-lined, elastic uh, a silicone balloon, if you will, the tension in that balloon provides the pressure within the cuff. Uh, that can fatigue with time. Uh, and so, you know, if you look at the data, the uh, half-life of these devices is somewhere between seven and 10 years. And so I think it's important for patients to know. So if it's man-to-man in his mid-70s, uh, you know, there's a good uh, possibility uh, that this may be the only device that he ever needs. That being said, if it's man in his 50s, I tell him that almost undoubtedly you know, to undergo a sphincter basically guarantees that he kind of will have a series of operations over the remainder of his lifespan. Uh, and again, speaks to, for borderline candidates, the potential uh, importance of a sling because it kind of almost kind of uh, uh, buys them more time on the clock, especially if it's successful. But yeah, it's usually, uh, you know, early complications being worried about an infection, which is rare, uh, 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 urethral erosion, uh, which will occur uh, in somewhere between 2 to 10% of men, depending on their prior history. But if they make it through not kind of encountering those in the early post-operative period, uh, you know, they can expect somewhere around seven years before they even really have to worry about, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, device failure. Yeah, I think that's super valuable, you know, across the age spectrum and health spectrum, you know, but certainly for younger patients that that may be considering some type of uh, intervention. So you mentioned abrigus urinalysis. Um, if that's positive, obviously they would have a culture and have that treated. Is that your general practice? That's a toughie. It's it's pretty controversial. I mean, clearly, if patients have symptomatic cystitis, that this is a patient we would treat like anybody else. We're not going to operate on someone that has symptomatic cystitis. But what you commonly see in incontinent, you know, chronically wet men, likely due to kind of, uh, you know, kind of the breakdown in their normal host defense mechanism, which is a dry outlet, is they'll be chronically colonized. And so, you know, this is controversial. If someone is asymptomatic, their UA shows no pyuria, and their preoperative culture shows, you know, 50,000 colony forming units. Uh, you know, of a single speciated pan-sensitive uh, E. coli, kind of the reflex thing that we see amongst our trainees is to give them two weeks of antibiotics leading up into their surgery. I'm not going to necessarily say that that's wrong, but you're not going to cure, uh, at least immediately, the host defense problem that they have. 
And so my experience, it's perfectly reasonable just to give them appropriate culture-sensitive antibiotics around the time of their operation. And what this does is it treats the problem that they kind of have perioperatively without modifying their bacterial milieu and then hopefully not breeding for resistant organisms. So that's my personal opinion. Um, I've had great success with that. I think to study that is hard. We've looked at kind of nationwide the practices among reconstructive urologists and found managing this problem is across the board. So there's clearly no consensus, but I just would invite people to be thoughtful about their kind of maneuvers there and not reflexive, particularly if it's an asymptomatic colonization without any pyuria. Okay. So uh, kind of a standard case, um, preoperative antibiotics, is there a go-to that you use for your reconstructive cases? Yeah. So for any prosthetic case, so an artificial sphincter or an IPP, if there's no allergies, I'll do a gram of vancomycin and then five milligrams per kilogram, ideal body weight uh, dosed agentamycin, uh, just that single dose kind of on the way into the OR. And if it's a sling, I'll just do ANSEF. Okay. And do you continue those postoperatively? Nope. Just the single dose. The modern prosthetics are coated with uh, inhibizone. So uh, that releases the, the minocycline and the rifampin locally into the tissues. Uh, and so that treats two things. It also, you know, treats the patient uh, internally, but it also treats the patient externally. Many times when we talk about infection risk, they'll be like, well, doc, why aren't you giving me antibiotics? And I said, you're getting antibiotics internally. Uh, and so that uh, I think is effective uh, on both uh, both arms, so to speak. Perfect. And um, just a little bit about, you know, some of your, your critical intraoperative considerations. Um, there's going to be a, a whole host of patient-specific factors, post-radiation, obesity. But, you know, maybe starting with, with sphincter, what's, what's the kind of crux of the matter as you're deciding, you know, what size goes in? Is it, is it sizing of the cuff that's really going to drive the outcome here or potentially drive complications? Can you tell us a little bit about the critical, most critical aspects of the case? Yeah, so I think having good urethral exposure is important. I think uh, uh, once upon a time, people would place uh, artificial sphincters through a penoscrotal approach, and that's largely been abandoned. So I think getting the patient into a good lithotomy position, using a self-retaining retractor, um, and really getting good exposure of that most proximal bulb right before it makes the turn toward the urogenital diaphragm, uh, getting good exposure of that port, part of the urethra, careful, uh, sharp dissection, uh, circumferentially, particularly dorsally, this can be hard to see. So having a good assistant, having good surgical lighting, I like to use loop magnification. I don't, you know, I think it's uh, an error to just shove a right angle back there and hope that it's in the right spot. So I like to do this under direct visualization. Uh, this is something that's easily taught. Uh, most uh, programs now have, uh, you know, urologists that are doing higher volume urethroplasty. So it's really no different than that part of the exposure. And then getting an adequate measurement um, of uh, the uh, circumference of uh, that corpus spongiosum urethral complex. It's debatable whether you undersize, oversize, make them a bit tighter, a bit more loose. I like to just right size them. So get an accurate measurement of the circumference and then put a cuff around it that fits that size. Um, if they measure, for example, 4.3 centimeters, I'll round up to 4.5, especially to the 4.5 size cuff as those come in only half centimeter sizes, especially in radiated patients. Um, I don't like to make it too tight. Um, uh, I think with that, you allow lower risks of erosion and lower risks of urinary retention. So I think adequate exposure, 
precise measurement and then accurate sizing based on that. Although there is some controversy, there are certainly those that want to make it a little bit tighter, um, but uh, you have to kind of anticipate the possibility of higher risks of retention and erosion if you choose that approach. Okay. And how about for, for slings? If you could just kind of, again, highlight, you know, where you think the battle is won with that operation. Yeah, the most difficult part of this operation or the most, uh, I guess, foreign part of this operation for those that don't do urethral surgery every day is uh, uh, identification uh, and dissection of the most proximal bulb and division of the central tendon, basically all the way down to the urogenital diaphragm. Uh, and so this is, uh, you know, for those that do urethroplasty a lot, this is no big deal. But for those that may be inexperienced with urethroplasty, this is a scary step because you're actually uh, kind of dissecting kind of parallel between the corpus spongiosum and the rectum. Uh, and so I think making your incision all the way down to the anal verge uh, with appropriate draping of the anal area, good exposure, anterior retraction of the corpus spongiosum, posterior retraction of the bubble spongiosus muscle, and then just careful division of that uh, uh, urogenital dot or that uh, uh, central tendon all the way to the UGD. That's really the most, most difficult part of the dissection. The needle passage or the trocar passage, if you will, is something that's really, the learning curve on that is just a couple of cases, probably shorter in those that are used to doing it for female transobturator slings. The redesign of the sling uh, over the past several years is a, is a, is a larger circle on that helix, make it e making it easier to get around the descending ramus. So that's pretty straightforward. I think, I think really once you figure out, you know, kind of become comfortable with that uh, posterior dissection of the, of the central tendon, um, uh, this uh, is really a straightforward operation, something that I definitely uh, would, would place in the camp uh, of a general urologist. Perfect. So you mentioned, you know, more, I guess, feared complications, infection and erosion where, you know, hardware has got to come out. Um, broad strokes, once, once you've done your device removal, about how long do you give things before you'd be comfortable with reestablishing the evaluation, repeating a Cisto and potentially putting in another, another device? Yeah, quick word to mention uh, about slings there. Um, uh, you know, if you scope them at the time, uh, the likelihood of having a sling erosion into the urethra is effectively nil. This has not even really ever really been reported in any, in any substantial numbers. And the reason that I mention that is that due to the kind of widespread visibility of the mesh problem amongst uh, uh, the female incontinence and prolapse market, your patients will ask about this. They'll say, I saw this commercial about sling use for incontinence, what's the deal? And so I think being mindful of the fact that uh, the male urethra is different than the female urethra, the male genitalia is different than the female genitalia, and so as such, the performance of the male sling is different with regards to erosion and infection. Uh, and this is something that uh, a sling explant is effectively almost really never needed. Um, with regards to uh, uh, artificial sphincter uh, erosion and infection, um, I use I use the three-month cutoff. Uh, sometimes this might be longer if the patient has a longer prolonged course if they develop a fistula after uh, a urethral erosion and, and sphincter explant. Um, so if they do well after that, the catheter's in for a few weeks, comes out, their VCUG shows the urethra is healed, I'll scope them at three months. And then if they're uh, so motivated at that point in time, uh, proceed with uh, a salvage sphincter placement at that point. Yeah, and I mean, of course, we get into the uh, less common scenarios, you know, previously placed sling or sphincter, post-radiation, fistula, and, and I think that's a little bit outside of the scope of what I kind of wanted to touch base on today, but common troubleshooting. You've got a sphincter in, something doesn't quite seem like it, it went like you would have, you know, potentially imagined. 
you know, what are, what's your assisto, a urinalysis, a culture, maybe UDS, if there's some component of mixed incontinence, but actually in terms of, you know, interrogating the device and um, not committing to a full-blown comprehensive replacement, um, you know, what are common things that you see that you, that can oftentimes be managed a little less intensively? Yeah, one thing is to make sure that they're just, you know, kind of operating the system right. Sometimes they'll inadvertently deactivate the device um, and won't know it. And if they, you know, hadn't seen you in a while uh, or seeing uh, perhaps another urologist that may not be comfortable or, or uh, uh, familiar with the device, they may have, have never reactivated it correctly. So something simple of just interrogating the pump. Something else that can be done easily in the office is standing them up, doing a cough test, seeing if it's true stress leakage. Another thing is uh, placing an ultrasound probe over the area of the pressure regulating balloon. Um, if you have an abdominal probe, uh, this can you can easily locate this. The cross-sectional diameter of a full pressure regulating balloon should be about three and a half centimeters. So if you either can't locate it or just see a kind of the hub, the uh, echogenic hub, but no kind of uh, hypoechoic uh, fluid-filled balloon next to it, you know that there's a fluid leak somewhere. Um, if you don't have the ultrasound equipment in your office, it's easy to do a non-contrast kind of a stone protocol, uh, a CT scan of the pelvis to see if the device uh, is empty. And so that kind of puts you into a couple of categories. If it's empty, then you know it's a leak. If it's full, but they still have stress incontinence, uh, then it may be uh, a problem with the bladder or a problem with the coaptation at the level of the cuff, in which case more invasive evaluation, cystoscopy, sometimes urodynamics will be needed at that point. But the combination of an exam, a cough test, uh, and a, some imaging of the balloon can give a lot of information uh, with very little effort. Really appreciate that, Steve. And you know, a recurrent theme that's occurred to me over the course of our time together is that, you know, while this can be a straightforward procedure, I, I think you've really highlighted that, you know, there is a lot of nuance. There are a lot of patient-specific um, factors, incontinence-specific factors, perioperative considerations, post-operative things that can be done that, um, you know, really elevate this from a okay outcome to a perfect or as close to perfect outcome as, as we can hope for. And, you know, I, I, sure, I certainly appreciate you kind of walking us through, um, you know, this entire journey and how it goes in your practice. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think that most of my patients uh, never require this operation. None of us are immune. And, and I can certainly say that that my patients that have had outlet procedures with Steve have been, you know, extremely, extremely pleased with the whole experience. So before we wrap up, Steve, any any kind of just thoughts, um, recommendations for trainees, urologists, um, you know, as they as they think about post prostatectomy incontinence. Yeah, I mean, I think to, you know, as trainees are learning about this as kind of well-rounded general urologists or, you know, perhaps looking to get into this aspect of the field, I think this is well within uh, the arm's reach of, of well-trained urologists, especially kind of for uh, kind of the first-time cases. You know, as we get into more salvage cases or reoperative cases, you know, those of us that do this frequently are happy to accept those patients. But really, this is something that is available to everybody. And there's a big problem in the field with men kind of having this problem and not knowing that this option is available. So kind of uh, there are a number of efforts to kind of get visibility of this problem out to uh, urologists, out to non-urologists, and out to patients to realize that good options exist that could really dramatically improve the quality of life uh, among patients. And there's also innovation underway. The sling has been redesigned, uh, you know, over the last several years. Uh, and even kind of on the horizon, there's the EAUS that's in development uh, that I expect that will be present and I'm being told will be on the market within the next five to 10 years. 
So if we're counseling patients about an artificial sphincter and a man that's in his 50s, I am at the point of telling him that we're going to give this a go. We've got a good option available. But who knows, a decade from now when you get your revision, there's going to be new technology available that may allow you to really do some exciting things like kind of modulating the pressure that allows you to kind of crank up the the uh, control when you're out running and turn it down at night when you want your urethra to rest. And so, I mean, I think that there's an exciting aspects of this field that are within arm's reach today and which, uh, you know, will kind of evolve and improve, you know, in the uh, generations to come. Well, that's exciting. I think, um, you know, we see examples of this across urology. You know, the AMS has obviously been the workhorse for a long, long time as it pertains to sphincters. And, uh, you know, I think there's been some some new technological advances, as you described, which, you know, again, are, are probably not things we're going to get to be able to comprehensively run through, but it sounds like the slings are getting better there. We're getting more data. We're understanding what the limitations are and opportunities for improvement. Well, Steve, you know, again, I, I really appreciate you sharing, you know, the wealth of knowledge. I certainly learned a lot and, and hope that, um, you know, our, our leadership does as well. So thank you, thank you, and uh, thanks to our listenership. Thanks a lot, Aditya. It was a pleasure to be with you.